0: everyone. Welcome to Episode 74 of the Ubuntu Security Podcast. I'm Alex Murray, Tech Lead on the Ubuntu Security Team. And this week, we've got a special guest on board for uh, this week's episode. I've had a chat with Tim McNamara from the Juju team here at Canonical. Uh, but we're not going to be talking Juju, we're actually talking about Rust. So, I mentioned Rust in passing in last week's episode with Joe when we were discussing uh, new strains of malware. And in that case, it was one written in Go, and I was saying, when's the next one going to be written in Rust? But, uh, yeah, Tim has written the book Rust in Action, uh, a great book uh, to learn Rust, and actually, we've got um, some special uh, giveaway as well related to that. So, keep listening. So, yeah, we'll have a great chat about Rust with Tim. Uh, But first, we'll do our usual roundup of vulnerability fixes for the past week that have been done by the Ubuntu security team. So this week, there were 17 unique CVEs that were addressed. First up, we had an update uh, for the Linux firmware package. So this ships a bunch of different uh, binary blobs of firmware and in particular in this case uh, it's around Bluetooth firmware. So the kernel loads this and is used you know by Bluetooth drivers in particular the Intel Bluetooth drivers in this case because this was addressing uh, a CVE that we first talked about back in episode 43 which was related to uh, various Bluetooth implementations that didn't correctly uh, check elliptic curve parameters when they were doing key exchange and so what this would mean was if you uh, had an attacker nearby they could potentially force a weak key to be Uh, generated by the two parties and therefore you know be able to spy on your communications and inject uh, traffic and all that kind of stuff and so uh, this needed changes both on the kernel side of the code which we did as I say uh, you know sort of about 30 weeks ago back in episode 43 but uh, now we have the update that includes the new uh, binary firmware blobs from Intel so if you are running an Intel Bluetooth chipset and in particular if you are on uh, Ubuntu 16.04 or 18.04 long-term support you now have those updates. We then had an update for OpenLDAP, so this was one CVE that was fixed for all of our supported releases going all the way back to 1204 extended security maintenance, so that includes both 1204 extended security maintenance, 14.04 extended security maintenance, 16.04, 18.04 and 20.04 long-term support as well as our uh, interim release uh, 19.10. So uh, in this case, if you had a very uh, long expression used as a search filter uh, for OpenLDAP and it had a large number of nested Boolean expressions, it could cause uh, the Celepti Daemon to crash by running out of stack space because it would uh, parse those recursively. So a hard-coded limit was added there to make sure it would bail out if it got too deep. Then we had an update for Firefox. So this fixed eight different CVEs uh, in their latest oh, eight different CVEs were fixed by updating to the latest Firefox version which was 76.0. Uh, in this case it had some updates including uh, some, fi- some features for the lockwise password manager and in particular uh, it will now uh, sort of look for breached passwords. Uh, I believe this uses the uh, have I been pwned backend behind it and uh, so it will display you alerts if it does find any of your passwords have been breached there and you know, alert you to update them and helpfully uh, allow you to update them easily. But then it also included some uh, uh, security fixes as well. So things like uh, use after freeze, uh, there were some sandbox escapes, uh, some fixes for buffer overflows, uh, content security policy bypass, and memory corruption vulnerabilities as well. Unfortunately then we had to release another update for Firefox because that upstream version uh, had, some, had a regression in it in the behavior of various add-ons which could impair their functionality. So Firefox released uh, 76.0.1 and so we uh, you know, ported that to all of those releases as well. We then had an update for Mailman. In this case, there was the possibility for arbitrary content injection via the options login page. And so, uh, you would submit, you know, an email address to this to log in. If this looked invalid, it would then echo that back to you, saying, you know, invalid email address. But obviously, you could have anything in there. And so. If you had arrived at that page via a link that someone else had crafted with uh, you know, pre-filled form contents, you could then basically use that mailman instance to display any content you wanted back to the user uh, to then perform you know, phishing attempts or other sorts of things. We then had an update for Pulse Audio. And so this was for uh, all of, of the supported of releases being 16.04, 18.04 and 20.04 long-term support, as well as 19.10, the interim release. In this case, uh, this is an Ubuntu-specific vulnerability uh, due to an extra policy module that we ship in Pulse Audio. And so uh, we use this policy module to help mediate snaps. We have this in Pulse Audio so that SnapD can control what snaps are able to access in terms of Pulse Audio functionality. So uh, Snaps have uh, various interfaces that they can connect to. One of these is the Pulse Audio interface, but this has more recently been broken up into the separate audio playback and audio record interfaces. The idea being that, you know, say a media player, you generally only want it to have audio playback, but maybe uh, your uh, video conferencing app, you want that to be able to record audio as well. And so uh, the idea being that then, you know, they can have access to just those functionalities via Pulse Audio. The problem was that uh, the policy module did not restrict uh, the client being able to unload the policy module itself uh, along the way. And so if you had only access to say audio playback, you could then go and unload the policy module and then get access to audio record or whatever other functionality you wanted to via Pulse Audio. So yeah, so that was fixed to basically tighten up that uh, policy module that SnapD uses. We had an update then for IP route, uh, one CV that was fixed for Ubuntu 18.04 long-term support. In this case there was a use after free uh, when listing network namespaces and so you do this via the ip net ns list command and when it would go to print out part of uh, you know that network namespace part of that memory would have already been freed uh, just a few more to go through we had an update for squid as well uh, so this fixed four cves in uh 1804 604 2004 long-term support and 1910 These included things like uh, an issue where there was possible cache poisoning or a crash or potentially remote code execution from uh, malicious remote servers via edge side includes there was also uh, failure to properly validate host names in the cache manager for certain browsers so then you could get html injection into the cache as a result and finally uh, nonce replies were not properly validated when validating the digest authentication nonce values and this would then allow uh, nonces to be replayed basically uh and coming up last we had a regression so uh when we do security updates if there is then you know regressions in functionality we release an update so as i mentioned earlier we had one of these for firefox and this is in uh the file utility so this is often used for well this is used for identifying uh you know what a certain file type is so we don't just look at say the extension there we actually look at uh you know the the data itself that's contained in the file and try to figure out what it is Part of this functionality uh, if this is say a bash script or a python script is looking at the name of the interpreter that that script specifies by the shebang at the start of it now uh, in a previous update that we did uh, and i mentioned this all the way back in episode 25 that was uh, done by usn 3911-1 Uh, that caused a regression where it would then uh, print out uh, only, it would try to print out the name of the interpreter that was used, but it would use the size of uh, this variable to do that. And instead of, uh, so this variable holds the name of the interpreter, but in C code, that isn't actually the size or the the length of the string, that's just the size of a pointer. And so the size of a pointer is four or eight bytes, depending on if you're a 32 or 64-bit platform. And so at most, you'd only get uh, four or eight bytes of the name the interpreter printed. And so this really should have been using uh, the string length to print that. So that was a pretty simple update uh, to instead change that to yeah, do string length of the value plus one to get the null terminator to then actually print out uh, the full name of the interpreter that was being used. And that's it for security updates for this week. So as I mentioned at the start of this episode, I've got a special guest on this week for an interview. This was Tim McNamara from the Juju team. And so we're going to get straight into that now. All right, so today I've got a special guest with me, uh, Tim McNamara. He's uh, a developer advocate on the Juju team at Canonical. and but So he works on Juju, but uh, in his spare time, he has a strong interest in Rust. And that's actually what we're going to talk about today. Tim is also an author uh, of Rust in Action. And I believe we may have a special offer for listeners. Uh, yeah, later. But yeah. I'll leave hey, that hey. till later, but yeah, I'll let yeah, you introduce yeah. yourself, Tim.
1: Hey, thanks very much for the intro, Alex. Yeah, it's um, been a real pleasure to drop by. Um, so I've been programming in Rust, I guess, maybe since 2015-ish, maybe a little bit before then, kind of tinkering. Um, and it's been a really interesting journey for me professionally because I came to Rust not from, like, a C++ background, but from a pure Python, had never dealt with memory or low-level programming before, from that kind of perspective. Like, much yep. more of a web developer, like I've definitely um, written a few Django apps and, and those kinds of things. Um, and so, for me personally, one of the things I really like about Rust is that the Rust community is very welcoming of people with my background. Or that you know, there's no such, th- there, there are no kind of invisible barriers that say you're not really welcome here. Um, yep. And uh, so, that's one of the things that I think is. It's super interesting about the language that they've been able to kind of fold together technology and community aspects into kind of one really good package
0: yep yeah so uh taking a step back so rust uh, was initially developed by mozilla and i'm wondering how much of a role do they play then in the community are they still kind of like strongly in charge or is it yeah no that's a super
1: yeah really really important point so the language was kind of prototyped by Graydon Hoare. Uh, like, originally implemented by an OCaml kind of as a side project and kind of incubated personally. Uh, Now, Mozilla faced this existential threat, which is Chrome. And the only way to get past Chrome really from a performance point of view was really to smash concurrency. Like, if they figure that out, they'll be able to develop much more quickly than the Chrome team. Uh, And so there was this idea that actually C++ is a tool isn't really getting us enough. Uh, yep. We keep having problems that we need to kind of work over and so forth. Um, and so that's why they, that's kind of provided the motivation for Mozilla to invest in kind of this really com- uh, experimental and unproven side project. Um, Graydon had private previously attempted to kind of bolt on some safety, some sort of memory safety and security, um, stuff into C++ and I think it's called the cyclone project. And basically the, the outcome of that was couldn't be done. You couldn't right. get, yep. you can't really bolt on the advantages. What needs to happen is a new language. So then to kind of the second part of your question, well, well, if Mozilla has invested so heavily, uh, like to what extent are they still calling the shots? Yeah. Uh, they've been very, very gracious as far like as an external observer, to basically step back. Um, The language itself is managed through working groups and like various committees and so forth that are quite participatory. And there's no hidden vote as far as I can see that Mozilla kind of has this casting vote or, you know, there are only kind of one voice around the table. I think um, Rust has matured now to an, an extent that lots of big companies have invested really heavily in it. And... Uh, like, for example, Microsoft provides all of, uh, provides with a continuous integration pipeline through every single open source package will be run under the Microsoft, uh, sorry, the new compiler vision, and to test for any, uh, any like, any regressions. Uh, and, like, that's an expensive investment that Microsoft is making that is indicative of, like, a a process that's been driven by community, not driven by one player.
0: Cool, that's awesome. So um, from a security point of view, uh, I guess Rust is often held up um, you know, as this great, great hope You know, to save us from the perils of C and C++ <laughs> yeah, and yeah. yeah. Un- unsafe languages, right? So yeah. um, it focuses, uh, to my understanding, strongly on memory safety guarantees and, um, I guess... Uh, thread safety guarantees mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. You know, C and C++ in particular, um, you know, they there is no um, bounds checking in general on any kind of memory access. So, you, you declare an array, uh, you know, has a certain size, let's say, or you allocate one from the heap, whatever, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. Uh, but then because of the pointers uh, and the nature of array accesses, you can you know, access any element in that, you know, up to int max or whatever. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It you can happily be that thing, ask right. for the 20th so, element yeah.
1: of a yeah. an array that has five members right yeah. and uh that will not fail the compiler and mm. in fact if you're an assembly programmer you can't even exploit these kinds of functionalities mm. because you know exactly so the cpu doesn't care that you're asking for memory uh, a memory uh, you're asking for an integer in the 30th position let's say that actually represent you know that position in memory represents a machine instruction mm. which will Uh, interpret happily as an integer on your behalf. Um, Now, it turns out that operating systems and CPUs have some mechanisms in place, which uh, if you were to try and walk through your entire address space, uh, basically by treating your address, your memory space as a very large array, you very quickly find that your process will be shut down by the operating system. So with this thing called a SIG fault. Uh, so yep. uh, a SIG fault is um, a shorthand for segmentation fault. And that is a relatively crude mechanism that uh, enables a an operating system to shut down a, system, a, a, a process that seem, appears to be doing the wrong thing with memory. And the reason why that can happen is the operating system is actually putting up a facade in front of your process. The operating system and the CPU well, the CPU has this thing called a memory management unit uh, that has uh, that maps a virtual address space back to kind of physical memory, like on the little stick that you plug into your motherboard. Right um, now, that facade is a your, see, your operating system has a very big list of parts of the address space that are legal versus, versus ones that are not. And if you kind of wander through your address space, you'll find yourself shut down because you haven't been given access to that part of your address space. So what can a, what can computer program do to avoid getting shut down? One of the things that it can do is implement a check in the programming language at runtime. Like if I am a programmer, if I'm in Python and I have a list that has 10 elements and I ask for the 11th element, Python will like raise an exception really, really quickly. Because it actually, it actually checks. Like, is this length able? Does it make sense for me to ask for the 20th or the... You know, can I... Uh, or like the negative... Like actually, negative four is a bit of a special case with um, with Python because it will just start from the back. But, from the um, back, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, the, uh, It will check. But the problem is that check actually costs time. Uh, and there is this runtime overhead with being safe. Now what Rust can provide is a, uh, a level of safety that doesn't impose the same number of runtime checks. In the case of array access, there is actually still a runtime check. So uh, that one, but there are other forms of similar patterns of memory access. That Rust can effectively guarantee that you'll never encounter. It isn't going to know at compile time how long a dynamically, a list that's dynamically expandable is going to end up as. And so uh, it can not guarantee at compile time that every memory access is safe. And thus, actually, by default, will include an an array check uh, for that particular problem. Um, but you mentioned another word, a slightly before there, which is pointers. Yep. So a pointer is just the number. It represents a, an address inside this virtual address space. And one of the problems is that if your pointer is zero, it means like, this is an illegal address and Java and C and C++, uh, C sharp happily will give you, um, Null pointers, which are a pointer to nothing, and this is a way to represent maybe missing information, or you know we can provide a null argument to a mm. function, perhaps if we uh, or we might return null if something was illegal, um, and they're really really tricky to kind of squish out of your code. And if you've ever programmed to Java and encountered a null pointer exception. You'll kind of be like you'll have less hair than i do probably <laughs> <laughs> um and rust can guarantee that you'll never encounter a null pointer exception yep. and it can do that without exposing any runtime cost uh, and it the reason it knows that is alongside a values type it actually annotates a lifetime And this is just a concept that exists in in the compiler, right? There'll be no... The lifetime isn't tagged along with the data inside the binary. So if you were to run a debugger, it would just look like C++ to a debugger. Uh, But the compiler keeps a track of how long this variable is supposed to be alive for. And if the thing that is supposed to, uh, let's say that I have a function and I've got three or four local variables inside that function, all of those local variables should be cleaned up by the time I'm done. And so in like C++ terminology, Rust will require that destructors are called when a variable leaves scope. What that means is and it enforces this at compile time and it also enforces it with pointers or references to objects that exist in the rest of the program what that means that if let's say that i create like a, something that re- represents a file uh, like a file handle um, mm. in my program but i want to access that file or the, the data that's read into that file from multiple places in my code Let's say I've read the, the the data from the file into something that exists in memory. So now I've got yep. the, the data available in memory. The memory that was the file da, 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 uh, yep. will always be legal if I'm accessing it from within safe Rust. Um, I yep. add okay. the kind of the safe uh, provisor there because there's actually there are, there's an escape hatch.
0: Okay. So, so- yeah. In coming to Rust, you know, there's something that people often encounter, which is the borrow checker, right, which is yeah. about this management yeah. and tracking of lifetimes of objects and uh, who owns an object at a given sure. point in time. So I guess yeah, the yeah. way my understanding, at least, but feel free to correct <laughs> me if I'm wrong, my understanding how Rust guarantees the thread safety aspects is that, you know, it um, you essentially annotate uh, through your code um, when you are explicitly handing ownership of, you know, yeah, a given right, object right. to yeah, another, yeah, exactly. another part of code. hmm so then the borrow checker is, at compile time, able to understand, you know, when one part of code owns an object and then therefore where there may be, you know, data races against that or not, um, whether it's mutable or not as a result as well. So whether you may have two things um, trying to both um, mutate it at the same time, potentially. But that this can be, for newcomers, quite difficult yeah, to, to deal it's, with. It's, it's, it's a it, learning like,
1: curve. It, conceptually, it feels weird and magical. Um I personally really hate the term borrow uh, okay. and ownership. I find them yep. really, really frustrating. So in fact, in my book, I just basically replaced them. I say, look, the rest of the Rust community uses borrowing and ownership. We're going to use something different. And uh, because if I, uh, and the, I use read only and read write access. Okay. yep, uh, I, I can, I can get, ask for read only access. Multiple people can ask for read-only yeah. access, and that in Rust terminology is uh, a borrow. Uh, I can ask for read-write access, which is a mutable borrow, um, right? Yeah. And like ignoring, and then there's kind of this third thing, which is asking for ownership. In uh, in my book, I kind of go into this this notion that people from like a Western thinking, uh, you know, kind of like philosophical. Um, point of view we'll think of ownership as this ability to restrict access like restrict trespasses right but actually that's not what it means at all in rust a the or, the owner inverted uh, you know like scare quotes or the owner of an yeah. object in rust has no greater access to the data than anyone that's borrowing it they in fact need to borrow it from themselves normally the owner is just responsible for calling the destructor so, in fact, that is the distinction. And I, like, yeah. uh, now, Rust has inherited that terminology, like both lifetimes and borrows, and, and, and uh, a bunch of, from the C++ world. So, don't don't just blame Rust, but I think uh, Rust is perpetuating this myth that I would love to destroy, <laughs> that actually, <laughs> that this is a very arcane and confusing concept. The way to think of it is that it doesn't matter if we all have read-only access, sure. But only one of us, you know, in a community of friends, you know, only one of us would be allowed to uh, write or modify the value. And that's what Rust guarantees. So one of the the things that like really confused me as I was getting into this, uh, and the reason why owners sometimes need to effectively borrow from themselves from the code is that when I add a method to a struct, you know, which is roughly a class, like let's say if I yep. want to add a a method to a class, we would call it something different in Rust. Uh, I actually take a mutable borrow to myself, and that is because, <laughs> and like that took the longest time for me to figure out. Yeah, it's like why on earth I already have ownership, yeah. but actually, yeah. um, it makes it does make sense that the method is like another scope. And so when I enter the method scope, I need to re borrow or like reassert right. my access. Right. So I've got one yep. concept, which is that, uh, I'm, a, uh, I'm entitled to modify the value. And the other one is like, who's responsible for destroying the value. Yep. If, if in my own methods, let's say I've got three or four, uh, I borrow, myself, because I, in fact, that's exactly what it says. It's like I, I take a mutable borrow to my, to the self object. What I'm saying is that none of those objects will destroy me at the end. Whereas if I were to take ownership of myself, I effectively, I guarantee that, or Rust will guarantee that at the end of the function or end of the method, the self object that started it no longer will, will no longer exist at the end. You have to return some other new value. So uh, there, yeah, there are a couple of things where Rust has decided uh, to inherit the old language and the old terminology that's confusing. There are other bits and pieces where it has decided to be deliberately more friendly. So one of the things that it did uh, a couple of years ago, the Rust community decided to change their website. If you look at the old website, it had at the front page things like memory safety and move semantics and lots of jargon that was really important to technology people. And now the language has all shifted towards empowering people to write reliable, safe software. And you can, and again, this is kind of the marrying of really, really strong sound software engineering practices, along with kind of this focus at bringing people together to write safer software. Um, Because we can't really trust, I mean, I'm being, we can't, there are lots of threats now. Every device is connected to the internet and applications kind of can't trust themselves um, or trust each other. And that's actually one of the things that I like about um, Canonical is that we're really pushing hard on, for example, the Snap story. Because it's important that... If I download an application from some unknown person off the internet, that application is kind of bounded or constrained. And uh that safety by design or safety by default is what I kind of one of the things I like about Rust. And one of the reasons why I've tried to take the time to write a book that makes it more accessible.
0: I think that's um something except we're seeing more, I guess, a trend in that um traditionally Uh, computing has been you know here's a computer you can do what you want with it and i guess now we're starting to see more of a trend towards well no we need to make it safe to use and we need to put in certain guardrails and that's just how how things should operate and uh, you know um there's sort of famous i guess trend back in the automotive space where the same thing happened automobiles didn't have seatbelts and things and now you know it's all around safety because you know people start to realize that that's how you actually make um make real progress in the world, Mm, right? We can't keep making the same advances in computing if people can't even get their work done safely. Uh, And so to me, I see a a strong um, similarity, I guess, between both security and usability. You know, a a computer is sort of maximally secure if it does only what you want it to do. And that's also (laughs) roughly the same for if it if it is usable, right? It does sure. what you want it to and not the things you don't want it to do. Yeah, yeah. And, and, I think, or you, and you can easily do the things that are, are correct, right? And it's, it makes de- it hard to do the things that are incorrect.
1: There's definitely a usability benefit for having things not crash. Yes. So, <laughs> so, <laughs> so let we, one of the things we chatted about at the start was the fact that the operating system is going to close you down if you yep. do the wrong thing. And you'll find that most of the time when crashes occur in applications that has been triggered by the operating system. I mean, it's not really a a program isn't going to decide. I'm just going to crash on the user. Yeah. (laughs) The operating system is going to say, hey, this application is up to no good. It's tried to access memory. That's illegal. Uh, Yeah. uh, (laughs) Sorry, sir. You're you're dead today. You know, you're going to try and restart (laughs) the Rust has this reputation of being really hard to learn are there, are, yep what um what else is there like i'm no longer a learner and so yeah. I'm i mean i guess like any blind
0: yeah like so it is interesting that uh, you mentioned at the start that you came at it um being a you know python and sort of more web uh sort of high level language um, perspective right because I'm someone that's written a lot of C code. Sure. Um, and I, I see Rust through that, those, that sort of lens. And C is a very simplistic syntax. Um, whereas Rust has got a more complicated syntax. <laughs> I like, guess more, more like C++, right? But a lot more syntactic sugar that you need yeah. to use, particularly with these sorts of ways of annotating yeah. what your code is doing yeah, yeah, yeah. and that kind of thing. And so I always find, um, I've not written, you know, I still yet have not written a lot of Rust code, but I'm very <laughs> very keenly interested. Sure. Um, so I still find Rust a bit hard to grok as a result. Right, uh, yeah, yeah. But like, I guess that's, it, it, that's it, the nature of anything that's it, A, new, but also that it's, you know, it's a real step up mm. um, in terms of what the language offers.
1: Sure. So there are almost three points that I want to make. Uh, one is, like, Rust has this really horrible problem of kind of creating these really, like, hieroglyphic you know like function annotations and i've got life thing i lifetime things there and i'm i got brackets everywhere and it's all a bit of a mess right so uh and especially yeah and i've got generic types and so like sometimes i've got type variables as well as variables plus i've got lifetime variables like it's all a bit messy so uh that's one part of the story the other part is that we've talked a little bit about rust's origins one of the and in fact, I think I touched that the original implementation, I think, was in OCaml. Rust looks like C++, but actually a lot of its mentality is much more from like its ML heritage. Huh, so okay. it prefers functional programming in many, many aspects. You can see that yep. in things like all of its variables are immutable by default. Uh, you uh, have higher order functions all over the show. Okay. Um, yeah. There are uh, very, very first-class enum support. Now, those features mean that you don't have just a syntactic difference, but there's also a, uh, you know, if you come from an imperative like a C++ world or even a Python world to some extent or Ruby or Perl or, you know, pick, yeah. um, pick whatever you want, less so JavaScript because JavaScript also likes higher-order functions all the time, uh, would be... Uh, that you've got these semantic differences as well. Suddenly you've got maps and folds, and that can feel a little intimidating if you have always thought of yourself as someone who's very pragmatic and less theoretical. And uh, functional programming can feel very theoretical and you know mm. perhaps possibly less pragmatic. Um, so and there was another third point, but I think like it's okay to feel a little uneasy because. You don't need to learn the whole language at once. Uh, one of the things that I really recommend is like, you only need to learn the subset of rust that enables you to get your job done. You don't even need idiomatic rust. If you don't want generics, don't use them. Like just write two functions. <laughs> like, yep. uh, like You know, uh, you will gain an intuitive understanding of these really advanced features once you're ready. Like once but you still need to absorb all the entry level stuff. Uh, you can write things that look perfectly fine with for loops or you know, you can even use you can iterate through an array with like integer, like you can have your I value that increments up. And yep. like Rust is gonna be perfectly happy with you for doing so. Rust would prefer that you use a higher order function and like gorgeous iterators and use fold and all these other same things. But you know, right. it's not going to complain that you're uh, using code that a uh, coding style that's more familiar to you. And so I would not feel ashamed, especially while you're learning to use language constructs that you're familiar with because you can use, your own background as you know, you shouldn't see it as something that's holding you back. It's something that kind of pushes you forward. And yes. um, now the flip side is when I go back to Python <laughs> and I'm like, oh, I really, and like go, for example. So I, uh, before becoming an advocate on the Juju project, so we do a whole bunch of DevOps and a really, really compelling uh, DevOps product. It's you know in total in uh, you know some stupid number of lines of Go code, uh, well over a million at this stage, and uh, even when I write Go, I get so frustrated that we're using strings everywhere rather than enums, and I we're not covering our error uh, return values, and I'm, you know like this this this, this isn't pure, yeah. and so that's I think a bigger risk is that you'll be if you learn Rust, you'll suddenly find all these limitations. I think that is actually the frustrating thing. It's like Rust is not what everything is written in, and so yeah. and it's not and not, nor should it be the thing that everything is written in. Um, I still write probably more Python code than I write Rust code, but I hate returning strings. I hate receiving strings as input. I hate um, I hate exceptions being thrown from anything. I really hate runtime errors. I you know I really appreciate the added benefit that a strong type system and a strong emphasis on kind of quality software engineering practice has brought to my, you know, myself as a programming, as a programming person, yeah, you know, through rust. And that's why I'm sort of an advocate of the language less of rust as, you know, the rust compiler and the rust tool chain, but, mostly from the fact that it embodies a lot of practices that I think are really sound like dealing yep. with all of your errors. <laughs>
0: so, yeah, yeah. No, I think, and that's, um, yeah, by forcing, because what I really like about Rust is it um, forces you to really understand your code, right? You know, by having to do all the annotations, you know, you have to really understand where things are used, you know, what code is responsible for what. And so it's, um, it's really making you a better programmer and, and it also makes it harder to write code that, uh, you know, or sorry, to be able to effectively reason about your code, you need to make your code, you know, simpler. Um, and
1: yeah, yeah,
0: I mean, I like those sorts of aspects.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, for example, and like, this isn't to like compete with go or anything, but, uh, let's say that I send a map down a channel or like effectively in C++ land, that would be access to a hash map. I reference to a hash map like down Mm. into another thread through some communication mechanism. Yep the original thread, it should like no longer touch that. If you've been giving, if you're giving it to an, if, if you're giving responsibility for that object to some other thread, the original thread that may have created it effectively needs to keep itself away from it. And that's why I think picking up on your point about making you a better programmer, once you become aware of, risky patterns in your own code it becomes much easier to avoid them the borrow checker is not difficult because the concepts are hard the the borrow checker is difficult because it's reminding you sometimes very incessantly (laughs) very forcefully that uh the practices that you're used to are actually unsound yeah now it's going to provide you really succinct hints like you know this line is where you gave access to this other thread. um and by the way, you're calling a, you're calling its destructor or you're like deleting the object in the child thread. But what if the child thread like never stops? Like, is it alive yeah. or like, what does that mean? Uh, do you think that's the right way to do it? Maybe the parent thread should actually have responsibility for just like cleaning up. And, oh, there is a but with Rust and i just remembered it. <laughs> Rust deals really really badly with cyclic data structures so yep. if you have a, an acyclic kind of a tree like structure Rust will be fine mm. but if you need to suddenly from the leaf nodes of your tree like refer back into some other uh, branch then Rust is going to get very angry or at least you're going to be fighting the grain a lot because the the tooling inside the Rust compiler cannot guarantee effectively an infinite yeah. loop <laughs> Like, it's not going to be able to trace the lifetime all the way down. So that's one thing that Rust does not make easy for programmers would be that particular style of programming. Yep. And so maybe that's one thing to be aware of.
0: Yeah, so we sort of see Rust often positioned as you know replacement, particularly for C and C++, these sort of more low-level systems programming languages. But I know in your book you go into um, a bunch of examples that are, I guess, you know, level applications kind of things you don't necessarily see written in those sorts of lower level languages so i guess how what what sort of fit do you see for rust um is it is it this general purpose you know you can do anything in rust or is it uh you know so so as an example say go you know go is often held up as you know really good at writing um concurrent networking sort of servers and that kind of thing right um but not so good at the real low level uh low level programming
1: Mm, yeah sure yeah okay well that's a super difficult question because you're talking to an advocate, like someone who's a, f- yeah. a fan, right? <laughs> so here is my best attempt at, an, at, a, at a compelling answer. Um, yeah. Rust has a surprisingly broad level of application. Like, sorry, it has like this really incredible range. Once you get it, actually, you can be productive and... Uh, so I, before working at Canonical, I worked at a data science company. And we did lots of, like, data processing stuff. And yep. there was nothing I liked less than after a job that was, like, tuning through maybe terabytes of web data to encounter a, a name error. Like, or, like, some exception just got thrown in yep. Python. And I hate that stuff. Mm-hmm. And so I think Rust actually has a, like has more applicability than most people give it credit for. But additionally, like I don't want to get into a situation where suddenly the, should we rewrite in Rust kind of decision comes up. I feel like it's a very, very good tool for extending things that already exists, but I don't believe that it can like tomorrow be the thing that uh, we should suddenly just stop everything. Like Postgres should just stop its next version (laughs) <laughs> and, like, the, we should rebuild yeah. it. Um, yeah. But perhaps we can, if there are utilities around Postgres, that might be an interesting thing to rewrite. Or okay. to uh, we can write an extension to Postgres in Rust. And why would we do that? Well, there's the, there's the software aspects to it. But for me, me personally, the reason why I would do it as a Python programmer is that Rust was the first time where i didn't feel i didn't feel as if i was going to blow something up so whenever yep. i read any documentation about writing c extensions for python there was always kind of this caveat at the start which is like don't get this wrong because if you do your whole program will crash yeah and so uh that felt pretty or like don't do this badly because you might expose the security vulnerability For your application and suddenly all your users private data is going to be exposed to the world now if you have a situation that you want to if you're thinking about a z extension but it's intimidating to you or you want to write a native extension or uh, some component or maybe a command line utility that you really care about memory usage or you're worried about opex you know operational cost and you need things to be low in memory and low in cpu usage most of the time i would say you should probably start with rust than starting with with c uh yep. now that's an aggressive position but again i'm an advocate right like i am a believer in it i think it makes both from the technology but also from kind of the social aspects of kind of being given permission to write low-level code I for someone that never had a computer science degree you know yep. yeah, and so um the c++ community like i would never get accepted to like a c++ conference or like you know i
0: don't know you mean yeah you know
1: like i just yeah. feel i it's knew a, i would a, never feel like part of the club yeah. but with rust yeah, i can feel like part of the community in a, yeah. in a kind of meaningful way
0: cool thanks so much tim it's been really great chatting to you absolutely a lot about rust I've, yeah, I'm gonna to have to find a new project to, uh, to start <laughs> writing some new code in.
1: Yeah, it's a fascinating yeah. thing because you're like, okay, it was, this is an amazing tool, but what yeah. can I do with it? <laughs> like, yeah. It's like, it's like, yeah, yeah. yeah. So suddenly you get a new choice, you know. My, um, yeah, yeah. So, um, so have fun with it, and again, uh, be really curious to hear, uh, really fascinated to hear whether or not the promises that I've made, I can, like, the language can keep.
0: Yeah. I I think it's um, just even having that. It's kind of like, you know, Python has this real focus on, I guess, more um, being easy to use, readability, you know, this sort of standard way of doing things, right? And I think Rust sort of takes that and sort of levels it up into then, all right, let's add in kind of more safety and more other, you know, runtime guarantees about how the system should operate. Sure. And so I I sort of like that, um, yeah, that we are. And we're slowly evolving into more, I don't know, correct correct programming and from a security point of view that's always a better thing
1: right? mm, absolutely so. okay cool well um thanks I, mate no pleasure
0: yeah so we'll uh we'll have to i reckon we should do a follow-up of this in uh, in a year's time or something <laughs> <and> say, <laughs> see where things are right
1: yeah well um well maybe i can respond to hate mail right. <laughs> okay, i'll see you later
0: awesome yeah thanks again tim I' will speak to you soon okay cheers So I just want to thank Tim again for his time. It was fantastic talking to you, Tim. And to mention that uh, we've got a special offer offer for our listeners of this week's podcast. Uh, So Tim's book, Rust in Action, is published by uh, Manning. And they have a special offer for our listeners, which is 40% off all of their various products in all the various forms, which you can uh, get by using the code PODUBUNTU20. So that's podubuntu U -U N T U two zero. Uh, when you go and purchase any of their stuff via their website, which is fantastic. I want to say thanks very much to Manning for that. Uh, plus, they've also given us five copies of Rust in Action ebook to give away. And so uh, I want to give these away to anyone that wants to talk to us about Rust. You know, so if you want to send us uh, maybe the list of your favorite security tools that are being written in Rust, or if you yourself are developing something in Rust, or you want to use Rust on Ubuntu, or you've been using Rust on Ubuntu, uh, let us know. And yeah, you can win yourself a copy of Tim's book, which is fantastic. All right, so that's it for this week's episode. Thanks everyone for listening again for another week. If you want to get in contact with the team, you can reach us at security.ubuntu.com. You can find us hanging out in the Ubuntu Harden channel on irc.freenode.net. Uh, we also have the security section on discourse.ubuntu.com if you are on there already, or perhaps you want to find us on Twitter at Ubuntu underscore sec. Yeah, so thanks everyone for listening again for this week. Uh, next week, we'll be back again with Joe uh, to talk some more security news. But until then, remember, keep calm because we've got your back and I'll talk to you soon. Bye.